0: Greetings, everyone. I want to thank our singers. What a beautiful piece, and thank God for giving so much wonderful talent to this congregation and especially to our young people. I very much appreciate um, what they do. Sometimes people ask I don't know if this happens so much in other parts of the country, but around in the Bible belt, sometimes it does. Someone will just come up to you on the street and say, Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? There's a lot of ways you can respond to that. Uh, But you know, the Bible says that in the kingdom of God, all in the house of Israel is going to know the Lord. It says that specifically. Turn, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Speaking of Christ's millennial rule, God promised this to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. and something that is of considerable interest to us today as well. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it into their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people He's going to put their law into their minds and write it into their hearts. Well, he's, they're going to know God's law. They're going to understand it. It's going to be in their minds. But he said he's going to write it in their hearts. That's kind of an interesting expression. Um, I've noticed that, well, usually in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when it talks about from the heart, I wish that the, they would from their heart they would keep my commandments. From the heart, it's kind of talking about the seat of the will. Um, So when it says from the heart, it means something you really want yourself. This gift is from the heart. I give this to you from the heart. It's something I wanted you to have. I wanted to give it to you. Or it was something that was said from the heart. It was something they really meant. Well, he says he will write it on their hearts. It will be something that they desire, something that they choose. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me. They will all know me, he says. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. They will be able to have it in their hearts. So how will the house of Israel come to know their God? Well, you know, only a few in Judea could recognize him at all. He came to visit them. The same one that said what we just read came to visit them. Nobody knew him. Um, He said, um, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. They didn't know him when he came. They couldn't recognize him. And when he comes next... He said through Jeremiah that I will put my law in their hearts, I will write it, my law in their minds rather, and write it on their hearts and forgive them. And then one result from that is that they shall all know me. Well, maybe that's a good way to know the Lord. In the future, God will reveal a lot about himself through the law, and it's important for us to remember that he does it for the church as well today. Appreciated um, what we heard a little bit earlier from Mr. D. Simone. He mentioned uh, applying God's law this time of the year. We want to think about it. Well, how do we apply? Well, of course, looking into the mirror of His Word is one way we do that, and we see ourselves reflected in the mirror of His Word, which reflects God's own character. How do you know God? And do you seek to know Him? In ways, in all the ways rather, that he provides. He has many ways for us to do it. His spirit is one way, of course, but also in his law and in his word, he reveals himself, what he is like. We should all want to know the Father and Jesus Christ in order to develop our relationship with them and to become like them. And because Christ cleanses us of our sins by his sacrifice, something that we keep in mind and we're thinking of in these days, we now have him living in each of God's converted people, Christ living in us. We need to know our master. One way that we can know God better is the same way that God tells us the house of Israel will know in the kingdom of God by studying, practicing, and internalizing God's law. Well, you know that. I think you already understand it. And sadly, this wonderful, valuable, essential way of knowing our Father is something that is completely rejected by the world. They don't understand it, and they really don't like His law. They can't say, oh, I love thy law. They'll say, oh, it's not away with. I'm free. I don't have to have that anymore. By studying the biblical statutes, it's a very helpful way to gain insight into God's character and to know him better. It's not the only way at all, but one way uh, to help you in your Bible study and to know the Lord is to study those statutes. Today, the sermon won't be on a comprehensive exposition of the law, but rather we'll focus on just one thing, how we can learn things from the statutes from the statutes, they are very, very valuable. The title is One Way to Know God Better. And first we'll um, learn how God's law, I'll be reminded of how God's law reflects his character. We can look into it and see the way he is, what he thinks is right and wrong, what he chooses to be right and what he chooses to be wrong because that's the definition of it. And the second thing is we'll look at some statutes as examples. And perhaps as we examine ourselves now, we can look at some of these things as we study God's Word and find the statutes here, and I can look at this and I can know more about myself and about God and how to examine myself. But not only for this time of the year, but for the rest of the year as well, helping us to learn more about um, God. So the first point is... God's law reflects his character and his priorities. God's law reflects his character and his priorities. When God set up the nation of Israel, he gave them pretty much everything they needed, including wise statutes and judgments that were based on his commandments. Um, I've got an older copy of Unger's Bible Dictionary. It's got a very helpful commentary on the source of the Ten Commandments. This comes, I'm going to read something to you. I've always really liked this, and I've used it a number of times before. This comes from the 1966 version of Unger's on the Decalogue. I'm going to read from that in my notes. The foundation and source of the moral law is God's character. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery is the way the Ten Commandments are introduced. The Hebrew name used here, Everlasting, Eternal, Almighty, intimates that the principles of the law have their standing in the character of God. I am, thou shall. That's the connection. And that is what makes the moral law so awesome in its unchangeable majesty. It is law because God is. It cannot be changed without changing the character of Jehovah Himself. Right is what it is because God is what He is, and therefore is as unchangeable as God. I always kind of like that. It really puts it pretty well. There's a lot more we can say about it. It's interesting. This is essentially a Protestant document, Ungers, but there are people who understand that, and I hope more can understand it in the future. God's commandments reflect His very character. They communicate what he defines as right and wrong, and God does not change. Just for instance, Malachi 3, 5 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And then in Hebrews twelve twenty seven, he says it again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You could switch those, and they would be saying the same things because it's about the same individual. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. The biblical organization of the law is commandments, statutes, and judgments. That's the way they're presented. We talk about that a lot. Sometimes he'll just say, keep my commandments and my statutes, or just reference the statutes or the commandments separately. But here we'll see it. Verse 1, he is uh, Moses is, has just given in the previous chapters the Ten Commandments, and then he says, Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Commandments, statutes, and judgments. And so that organization is given in a number of places. I'll just mention Deuteronomy 5.31, also in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 8, even over in 1 Kings 8.58. Commandment statutes and judgments. Now, some um, sort of reorganize the law in to um, in a theological sense as moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law, and that may have its uses. But you don't find that organization in the Bible. When God tells us about it, He puts it a different way. He, uh, the God's, is His revelatory organization from it. The statutes derive from the Ten Commandments. So the principles that the statutes contain further communicate God's character regarding right and wrong. So we can look at a statute and say, all right, well, how does that statute come down? Why did he put it there? And then we can look at it and find, well, how is God reflecting his priorities, his sense of right and wrong, and so forth in this particular statute? The judgment um, often implemented various aspects of the statutes on a local level, in um, Israel, and that was under the Old Covenant. I might add that our Jewish friends have a Talmudic teaching that there are 613 commandments. I don't know if you've heard that before, Um, but uh, uh, that there are 613 commandments in the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible, but that also includes a number of um, uh, sacrificial laws. It includes the statutes and a number of Talmudic traditions as well, along with the commandments and the statutes. And such traditional lists may be of interest, but we look to God's word directly as opposed to the rabbinical tradition. We're not trying to be Jewish here. We just want to obey God. That's what we're trying to do. So to summarize point number one, God's divine law reflects his character and it reflects his priorities. God said that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. That's throughout the Bible. Love me and keep my commandments. The love of God is keeping his commandments. You can't love God without keeping his commandments. That's because he's presented himself to us. In his commandments, what he thinks is right and wrong. This is stated in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So point number two. Did you know that the Apostle Paul affirmed the use of the statutes to Gentiles? Sure did. Let's have a look. Let's look at the statute. We'll start off with Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse Well, this is a statute, and you could read right over this and say, okay, well, that's an interesting statute, great for back in those days, but really not anything that I'm too interested in because I don't have cows. You shall not muzzle an ox that treads out the grain. Now, anybody here have an ox or have oxen, a brace of oxen maybe? Maybe you got some cows out back, huh? You got some grass-fed grain? you want a new friend? Mm-hmm. Yeah well, even if you do have cattle where you live, you don't use them to tread out the grain, do you? So do you have to own an ox in order to benefit from this statute? Well turn to First Corinthians chapter nine and verse nine and 10. First Corinthians chapter nine and verse nine and 10. Here the Apostle Paul applies a principle in the statutes um, when he was teaching the church in Corinth, Greece. These are Greeks. He's not speaking to Jewish people. There might be a few scattered in there, but these this is this is a Gentile Greek church in a very lively port city. For it is written in the book of in the law of Moses you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or did he say it altogether for our sakes? What? What's this oxen got to do with us? He's asking this question. Well, he answers his question. For our sakes, no doubt this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown sown spiritual things to you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So he's saying here that it's it's okay for the ministry to live on the ministry. We pay our ministers with your tithes and offerings so that they can uh, support themselves and their families and serve you and also serve in all of our churches. Paul was saying that while the statute required... Kindness to a working animal, its primary purpose was a spiritual lesson for the church. What did he say there? That's exactly what he said. Did you, uh, do you have to own an ox rather to keep this? Well, no. Paul said, he noticed, is it oxen God is concerned about? Or did he say it altogether, God, for our sakes? No doubt. So this is a statute given to, Presented to a Gentile church by the Apostle Paul as being for our sakes. Cool. Are there any more? Maybe we can find some more. Maybe there are lots of them that we can learn from. Because God is saying this is one of his priorities. Something that we should know about. I'll just mention one other here quickly. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, we have Paul being very critical of the church for allowing a man who is having an affair, possibly even a marriage, uh, with his, uh, father's wife. And the statute for that is Leviticus 18:8. 8. It forbids the, um, pra- uh, that particular practice. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. So that he was applying a statute to the church there as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here Paul is also affirming in instruction to Timothy the validity and the importance to the church of the law and the prophets. Beginning in verse 14... But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. When Paul was writing about the Holy Scriptures, he was referring to the old, what we call the Old Testament canon. That was extended in that time because uh, we know that because Timothy learned them as a child. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So uh, we know that that's what he was talking about. Paul wanted Timothy to remember that while his salvation comes through faith in Christ, God's commandments, statutes, and judgment would give him valuable understanding and valuable growth. Wise for salvation aiding in his life and ministry, building his faith, putting his faith into action, living faith in Jesus Christ. Verses 16 and 17, Paul continues, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have our faith in Christ, but we want to grow in his stature. We want to know about him. We want to know our God. So if we want to do that, then there are things we can study in his word and know about him. But we, maybe we didn't know we could do it before. We can learn from these things. While well, we can... Um, Learn from all of the scriptures the judgments um we won't really go into those today but they were applied to the ancient nation of israel under the national covenant made at sinai and were implemented as civil laws of course that covenant ended with christ's death and the application of the judgments of course ended with the end of the um, nation of israel for instance the church. Um, in the past and the apostles' time and today, advocates the commandment requiring fidelity in marriage. We do not advocate stoning for it, nor did Paul in his day as well. So to summarize point number two, we should all remember that in addition to defining sin, God's divine law provides us with valuable doctrine and reproof and correction, and instruction in righteousness that is necessary to do all the good works that he has for us to do. Living faith. We are to have living faith. There are two kinds of faith. And the church does not recommend that you seek your salvation through dead faith. We think that's not a very good idea, nor do any of the writers of the New Testament. You know, instead of asking... Do I have to keep the statutes? Is he saying that I have to keep the statutes? Maybe the better question is, hmm, is there things I can learn from the statutes? How can I keep the statutes? What's there for me to learn from and to grow from and to know my God? Different question. God's people ask the latter question. Point number three. Point number three. We have... The two great commandments, the two great commandments, Matthew, chapter two, verses thirty five through forty, Matthew, chapter two, verses thirty five through forty. Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment. Someone came up to him and going to put the question to him. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Okay, let's see how much this. Bumpkin from Nazareth really knows. Let's see what he says. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It's interesting, Jesus was quoting himself as quoted by Moses in Deuteronomy six five and Leviticus nineteen eighteen. He was quoting himself through Moses. I'll just read Deuteronomy six four. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. This wasn't something new that he just made up on the spot. This was from the law of Moses. Leviticus 19:4. you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he says, and puts his name there. Hmm, fits pretty good with the first sermon that we heard today. How do all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments? They've got them all hung there. Somehow they're all hung The law and the prophets descend from these two commandments. How do they do that? Well, he certainly was not saying that those two commandments negate the ten. Now, Some people say, well, you know, if you love God with all your heart and mind and strength and everything, you don't have to keep the ten commandments. You can forget about those. Just love the Lord. Well, that's not a a very good idea. You can't love God with all your heart if you worship idols you can't love god with all your heart if you take his name in vain you can't <laughs> can you love god with all your heart if you profane his sabbath hmm interesting question and we cannot love other people mankind as ourselves if we steal from them or if we harm them we hate them you can't <laughs> love who you hate oh no. this is a summary of the commandments. The first four of the commandments have to do with how we love God and are summarized by the first and great commandments, the first four. The next six commandments have to do with the love of our fellow man and are summarized by, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, uh, which has to do with our relationship with our physical parents, also transitions us between the love of mankind and the love of God. And when you go all the way down to the last commandment, the 10th commandment, uh, you shall not covet, and um, gives us a good bit of detail to that. Remember that Paul said in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It's greed is basically what it is. So it ends with idolatry, covetousness, and which circles us back around to the beginning. The Lord is our God and we shall have no other gods. The two great commandments are expressed by the Ten Commandments. Then the statutes derive or descend from from those commandments. And generally speaking... The judgments uh, implement the principles of the statutes locally in Israel. The law is God's government, which he applies in love. He's given to them, us to them, for our good, he tells us. And generally speaking, the prophets were God's voice to the people. So God instructed uh, those prophets to communicate Israel's transgression of the law. If you read through the prophets, he's telling them, the prophets are telling them their sin and telling them, calling them to repentance. And he reminds Israel of the agreed-upon covenant that he had with them through the prophets again and again and again. And then he reminds them of the consequences of breaking his law and breaking those commandments and statutes and the consequences of breaking the covenant that he had with them. He also communicated God's promise of his coming government, the kingdom of God, saying, for instance, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. I love that one. I look forward to that. I know you do, too. I'd hate to be the poor guy who walks up to Jesus Christ in that day and says, the law can't go forth from Zion is done away with. (laughs) I don't think anybody's going to do that. God's law will still reflect who he is, and it will still be a blessing for all of mankind when it spreads throughout the world in his prophesied kingdom. Okay, summarize point number three. We can see why Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It derives from God's governmental law, which derives from love of God and love of mankind. Simple, beautiful, elegant. Point number four. Statutes applied today. Some examples. Let's look at some of these. The statutes applied today. Just some examples. The Apostle Paul gave the Gentile church in Corinth, Greece, an example of not muzzling the ox, as um, the application of a statute to people um, who were uh, spiritual Israelites but were not part of physical Israel. So here are a couple of additional examples, statutes that show the character of God. Let's look at these, and perhaps you've thought of this before, but perhaps you haven't. Let's look at them. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 35 and 36. Leviticus chapter 19 and verses 35 and 36. This is an application of the commandment, thou shalt not steal. So Israel was instructed in this particular case, You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length or weight or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, and honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm always interested in these things. You ever notice on a lot of these he stamps his name? I am the Lord your God. I, Gawai Elohim. He stamps his name right after it there. Maybe we ought to pay attention to that. Well, a hen, you know what a hen is? Uh, It's roughly two gallons. It's a liquid measure. And an ephah is a dry measure of about a bushel. I don't doubt if any of you have a hen or an EFA in your home, um, maybe you've got a bucket, uh, uh, maybe you've got a, a gallon, a five gallon can of gas or something. This doesn't apply to you then. You don't even have an EFA, do you? So how could this apply to you? Well, an honest tin or an EFA defrauds the other person of their part of the measure. If you do not have an honest weight or an honest measure, let's just say you have some scales. We have scales here. That was the way they did it. We have scales at the supermarket. You ever looked on that thing? It's been certified by somebody by the state. You know, many of the statutes you already keep, they're incorporated into the laws of the state of North Carolina and the United States of America. They are wise. They are good. Just measures are part of the law of North Carolina. And there's a department, and a guy comes around, and he checks these things. Well, what they said was that in your scales, you know, you could you could take a, a measure, you know, something, uh, the thing that you put on one side that gives you a certain amount of weight that so you're going to measure by. You know, shave that rascal down a little bit, you know. And now all of a sudden, you don't have to give the person quite as much. It cheated them. Out of their amount because you didn't have adjustment weight, or you say, "Hey, I got a great idea. You got the hen over here. Let's make it a little bit smaller. Let's do a new hen, and we're going to make it down a little bit smaller here so that it only has about three quarters of a hen in it." And I can measure this out, and you know who's go, who's to know? Who's to know? You know, I'll save a lot of money, and I can make more profit that way. Covetousness, greed, dishonesty, lying. That's what all of those things were about. It defrauds the other person of what they are supposed to get, and it violates the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Simple. Do you have an honest hen, and do you have an honest ephah? Well, you don't have to own one to obey this statute. Our God is a God of truth, and Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's John 17:17. 17, 17. His truth sanctifies us, and the deception of dishonesty and greed and covetousness that theft comes from is completely alien to him. No part of him is that way. So God forbids theft and deception in all its forms. And this statute derives from the commandment that said, Thou shalt not steal, and you shall not bear false witness. Our God is a God of giving, not a God of getting. He's a God of love and a God of truth. What's in your heart? What's that old commercial? What is in your wallet? What's in your heart? Is it God's law? Do you want to be that way when you have a chance to choose and you're completely free to do it? What do you choose? God wants to know. He wants to know because he wants you to choose as he does forever. Forever. So, he's going to develop us and teach us, and we need to know him so that we can choose as he does. And in a time of examining ourselves, well, that's a real good thing to be doing. Do we choose as God does? Do we forgive as he does, as we heard earlier? Do we make peace as he does, as we heard earlier? How do we behave and how do we choose? How can we apply the principle of this in our lives? What does an honest hen look like today? Well, it means that we observe honesty in all our dealings with others, not just in weights and measures. Do we give people what they bargained for or they shorted somehow? Let's look at some examples of what a dishonest effer or hen might look like today. Okay, I'm going from preaching to meddling here. How do you measure out your labor? Mm-hmm. You got 40 hours a week to put in, or 8 hours a day to put in. Are you giving? 8 hours, or is there only really 6 or 7 going on in there? Are you doing, are you giving all that you were contracted to do? Give full value to people. God is that way, and in addition, it's just good business. It's just the way that we should be. We don't, if we don't give full value for what we're paid for, then we may be taking something we don't deserve. Interesting to think about it that way. Keep it in mind. <laughs> good thing. Some good news about that. Happily, many employers are really happy to have you guys. They love to have church members working for them once they figure us out. Because they know that this, this same fellow or the same woman who is, will not work on the Sabbath, they're not going to steal from the supply cabinet either. They're not going to take something from the um, from the warehouse that they shouldn't take. They're going to give me a full day's work or maybe a little extra for it. They know that. By the way, if you're ever having trouble getting a job, you might remind them of that. Okay? Just say, look, you're worried about the Sabbath. Well, here's some other things that I keep as well. I do not lie to you. I do not steal from you. I will make peace. I'm not going to create problems within your organization. He you said, you got any more members at your church? <laughs> Some employees are smarter than they look, guys. So, uh, so be sure to be sure about that because it is important. It is a valuable thing that we have. Have you ever had someone to work with that represented? That they do really good work, but their quality wasn't so good. Maybe, I, you know, you see guys, maybe you're working on construction jobs and there's somebody, and he just never does things in a workmanlike manner. It's always the quality is always down a little bit. It's never quite getting as much, and people have to come back and correct the work and things like that. We could go on for this a long time, but our God is a God of quality. Give the quality that people need, that they expect. Give the full measure of work, the full measure of labor, the full measure of quality. These are just two examples, and now that since you know the biblical principle, you can think of others on your own. God is a God of quality, of truth, and of giving. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Here's another statute. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. Something we can learn from. In God's Word. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. Uh oh, there's again. I am the Lord your God put his name on that one, maybe we should look at it carefully. Do you have to be a farmer to learn from this one? I know that we have some people here that have uh, farms and, um, and or raise uh, vegetables and farms and so forth. Notice that, like the statute, it's that God stamps his name on it. So perhaps this one expresses his character. Let's see. Well, there's minimal gain from gleaning one's own field or gleaning a vineyard. Uh, just a story. Some years ago, we were, uh, we had the privilege of going to the feast in um, France, served actually uh, in UK and France that year. And Afterwards, we uh, decided to just drive around a little bit on the French countryside, and we would stay in some bed and breakfast and just eat locally. It was just a wonderful trip. And this was up in the area where there were just vineyards, vineyards, vineyards everywhere. And since it was the feast time, they were gathering a lot of grapes. So we were um, just kind of sitting there on the porch of this B&B, and all of the, the workers were coming in from the vineyards that surrounded this place. It was really nice. So afterwards, we just said, Yeah, let's go out and walk out there. So we walked out among the vines. Nobody cared. and there were, they, It had already been harvested, but there were... There's a grape, a few grapes here and a few grapes there. <laughs> um, what were those guys? I think they were, were Grenache. Really good. They were r- r- ripe and ready to be harvested. But, you know, it occurred to me as we walked along, we had to look a little bit for each time to find a, a few grapes here and there. If we had this a big vineyard, if we had tried to glean that, we would have had to, like, take a, a, a basket, one of these baskets, we would have been like a couple of hours walking up in his summer here and his one more over here to to fill that thing up, to get enough to make it, you know, worthwhile to go out there and do it. It would have taken a long time to do it. The thing about gleaning is there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns on that. You can go out and take your, um, you know, uh, cut your field or uh, harvest all of your grapes and so forth. But if you go back and try to do it again, it takes a lot of labor for very little gain. Well, it provided for the poor, and those have no resources but their own labor. For them, it wasn't a factor. They could go out and do it and spend all the time they wanted to. But it made no sense for the owner of it. It makes it possible for them to spend their labor productively getting necessary food. But the guy who gleaned his field at the point of diminishing returns didn't want anybody else to have any of the fruits they are not going to get any of mine. I'm not going to let those people out here. I'm going to take every last bit from myself, even if I lose money doing it. It made no sense to do that. In ancient Israel, God made the gleaning laws not only for the benefit of the poor, but also to keep the landowner from greed. Okay? A guy who gleaned his field was frankly being a little greedy. And God built fairness and honesty into his statutes. Not greed. Everybody benefited, even the landowner, even the vineyard owner. And all those people who could go, had the time to do it, the poor, they could go out and they could um, use their labor productively. How would you apply the uh, the gleaning statute in modern times? What does a person who gleans his own field look like today? Well, there's one way. I mean, i I've had a business career in my past, and let me tell you, down in South Florida, there are some guys who do not leave anything on the table whatsoever. They, um, they they do not believe that they have succeeded in negotiations until the other guy is hurting. They are tough negotiators. I say about some of these people, you know, they not only not, don't leave anything on the table, they don't leave the varnish on the table when they when they are through with it. They are tough negotiators and are very greedy about those things. Well, a good thing to do, I think, is to be sure when you're dealing with people that everyone benefit. I always would try to leave something on the table so that everyone who had a part in it got something from it. It was good business and also you, you didn't have the contentiousness And it lacked, the, I think, the greed of many people that I saw. Leave some varnish on the table. That's like not gleaning your field. So to summarize point number four, we should be looking at the statutes and finding God's character and priorities in them and then seeking to apply the principles that they contain in our lives. If you would like more study of the statutes, I can give you some lists here for your notes. They're found mostly in the following chapters for you to look at. Exodus 20 through 24. Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 24. Leviticus chapters 19 through 27. They're kind of scattered through there. There are other things there as well. Numbers 18 and 19, and 27 through 36, and Deuteronomy 12 through 20. Okay, let's just make a quick point about the sacrificial laws, a quick point about that. Please remember that the chapters containing statutes all contain many of the um, ritual Laws, sacrificial and purification laws. This is point number five. It'll be a brief one. And these things don't apply to us today because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews seven, verses twenty six and twenty seven. Hebrews chapter seven verses twenty six and twenty seven. <clears throat> So such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all, when he offered up himself the perfect, complete sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Turn over a few pages. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once and for all, having uh, obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who was through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot uh, to God, uh, cleanse, uh, cleanse you from your conscience, uh, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the, transi- the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise and eternal inheritance. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I'm working up to tell you that you have sacrifices to give, not of the kind that the priests gave, but we still have this to do. The church of God is Christ's temple because of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the temple of the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles this t- the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. First Peter 2:5. 1 Peter 2.5. The church offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, our mediator. We don't have to go back and do all of the things before. In fact, there isn't even a sanctified priesthood. You know, when we were in Israel for the feast, we um, uh, saw many people who were ultra-Orthodox there, but they did not do the sacrifices. You know why? It would have been a sin. They are not sanctified and haven't been for a couple of millennia. They may be in the future, but not now. And we keeping an eye to see when those sacrifices may resume. But you also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we do. What a song. We won't go through the list and make a great sermonette someday, but how about your songs? Spiritual songs. How lovely are you. I used to know a guy on Sabbath, he'd go around singing hymns under his breath all the time. Just love to hear that. That was his sacrifice. Your prayers are like an incense going up to God. Your good deeds and love for one another your faithfulness, all of these things, your spiritual sacrifices. God values those more than all of the blood and all of the goats and bulls and everything that they ever had, because you're the end result of it. Summarize point number five. The New Testament explains that we do not need for sacrifices to be offered up for our sins because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. As a practical matter, even the Jews do not have sanctified priesthood to do it. For anyone else to offer those things would be the sin of presumption. It is not done today. Point number six. So what is one way we can know God better? One way to do that. Well, a great way to benefit from the study of the statutes is to look for the character of God in them and to discern how it applies in our lives today. When you find a statute and you read it, Look for God's character in it, kind of like Hens and Ephesus and the things we talked about. Just a little practice there. They're profitable, and some like weights and measures are wisely incorporated into our modern laws. They make us better employees, and we make us more Christ-like. They're there for our good. They're good things. Luke chapter six, and verse thirty-eight. Luke chapter six and verse thirty-eight. Jesus tells us about how God's character is expressed and how He measures things. Let's see the hen and the ephah in God's hands. Here it is. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken altogether, and running over will be put into your bosom. For this, with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Sound familiar? No, we just talked about it. This is God's way of applying a just ethyl and a just Hen. Giving is part of his character. Measure for measure. You want to be like him? Measure like he does. He never shorts anybody. Never shorts anybody. But he will measure to you by the same measure that you measure to others. Hmm. Interesting things to keep in mind. The second commandment ends by saying, showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments, loving God and keeping his commandments. John chapter 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. The love of God is keeping his commandments. That's how we love him. We see this over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. John 2, 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Oh, you want to know the Lord? You want to know the Lord? Are you keeping his commandments? All ten of them. Well, those who love God and want to know him don't necessarily ask, How much of God's law do I have to keep? Uh Uh-huh. We ask, how much of God's law can we keep? How much of God's law can I keep? Because I love the law. It's Him. If I love His law and love His commandments, then I love Him as well. My love for His law comes out of my love of God. It says that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Love God. Keep His commandments. The principles contained in God's divine law reflect his character. We need to know how many ways we can apply God's character in our lives. Looking for God's character in his statutes and applying them in our lives helps us to know the Lord.